And then there was just this moment when the food actually came to the table and everything just changed. The tenor of the conversation paused and when we started eating, I could just see both of us fall out of our anxious brains, back into our bodies. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Si Pim Zhang is the author of the acclaimed novel, How Much of These Hills is Gold. Her new book, Land of Milk and Honey, is set in a near future where smog has choked out almost all agriculture, and a chef is lured to cook at a reclusive mountain institute for the global elite with the promise of produce. It's a gripping book about power, politics, and mostly a love letter to food, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show to discuss. Sipem Zhang, this is Taste. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Smelling intensely of garlic, so a little self-conscious about that. But other than that, I've had a great start to the day. I feel like if anything, you're just dressing for the occasion, smelling of garlic, as we're about to talk about a food book. Yes, thank What's you. What's the source of the garlic? Um, I just microplaned a clove of garlic onto two fried eggs, which has become my go-to breakfast this summer. I don't know why. Interesting. So it's raw garlic that's going on top? Yeah, but you know how when you microplane it, like, cooks in a second? So it's just, yeah, it's it's somewhere halfway between raw and cooked. I'm into that. I, something that I'm sometimes scared to mention is that I'm not an egg eater. Um, so that's not something that I'm personally going to try, but maybe on top of something else I would do that. Yeah, I know that the microplaner is often considered an overrated food instrument, but I, I still love it. No, I think it's rated appropriately. It just comes in handy so well. Yeah, I agree. And I'm really happy to have you on because I have been like so obsessed with your book, Land of Milk and Honey, and it hasn't been out at the time of recording. So there's been basically no one that I can talk to about (laughs) it except for Shalia, our producer. So I I was so excited to talk about the book. And to start, I'm just curious if you could tell me a little bit about how the idea came to you. Have you always been interested in, in writing about food? No, I actually grew up as a very picky eater and quite squeamish. Um, It was a product of growing up in a like very impoverished Chinese American family where we just didn't eat meals out in restaurants. So, you know, my my food borders were quite constrained. And I was just for some reason a kid who was icked out by like fat on meat. Um, And it was really this period in my late teens, I think after I'd gotten to college and there were sort of these months I I didn't have anything to do. And I started for some reason reading food blogs, a lot of them based in New York, actually. Um, And it was actually through the food writing, these sort of narratives about food and sort of what kinds of worlds it opened up for these people, some of them with similar backgrounds as me, that got me into the idea of eating more than the act of eating itself. I love that. I feel like as someone that works in food myself, I definitely had Jonathan Gold, for an example, as like a food writer that I read growing up that turned me on to the possibilities. Are there any writers or blogs that you want to shout out as being formative for you in that era? Yeah, there is this wonderful blog called, I think, The Girl Who Ate Everything. Um, I don't even know who the actual writer is because it was really this like, you know, early 2000s era of blogging, very pure, like no sort of sponsored ads, no uh, uh, sort of self-promoting. Um, and I just loved her because she sort of ate, you know, the Chinese food that I was accustomed to and incredibly exquisite, like Michelin level, like Nordic food in Europe with like equal aplomb um, and without any self-consciousness. 
I love that. And I that also is what drew me to Jonathan Gold's writing is specifically the way that he would champion like immigrant run strip mall restaurants in Los Angeles, but in the LA Times, like and also maybe the next week he would be reviewing like a very fine dining restaurant. And I feel like that approach kind of comes across in this book as well in terms of the variety of food that you're talking about. So to me, that's an interesting through line. Yeah. So your first book was not really a food book in the same way. You liked eating food. You liked reading about food. What made you decide to want to write about food at such length? Yeah, this book was interestingly a product of the pandemic, though it's not exactly what I would call a pandemic book. Um, it came out came out of uh, my experiences living through this really bleak time in which I felt deeply disconnected from my body. Um, you remember sort of early 2021, it was a time of so much chaos, important chaos in the world, you know, George Floyd's murders and political upheaval and COVID. And I was spending a lot of my time trying to do my best to help with these causes. And I became quite impatient, I suppose, with the fact of having a body. I actually felt a lot of shame for having a body that, despite having food and shelter and my health, still wanted frivolous things like going out for a drink with a friend or eating a nice meal or traveling. Um, and so there was this really transformative moment in that year when soon after uh, we got vaccinated. I went out for my first meal out and I was meeting this old friend of mine who was a doctor in Seattle at the time. So you can only imagine what he had seen um, mm -hmm. in those years. And, you know, we sat down at this Filipino restaurant called Musang. And the first part of the conversation was about how difficult things had been, what he was seeing on the floor at the hospital, all those things. And then there was just this moment when the food actually came to the table and everything just changed. The tenor of the conversation paused, and when we started eating, I could just see both of us fall out of our anxious brains, back into our bodies, and it was just like, oh, this is what it's for. This is what all the work, like the important work that we're doing is for. It's to be able to see the people you care about experience joy. It's to be able to share at this table. It's to be able to experience this gift of food prepared for you by somebody else that thinks to put things like peanut butter and shrimp paste together in a sauce um, and like opens the world a little bit for you and reminds you that th there's more than illness and grief. I love that. And I think that's an experience that I relate to. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this remember their first meal or to me, I think it's the first dance floor that I was able to go back onto of that similar moment of being in your body and of having pleasure that makes you feel connected to other people. And this book really is like to me a book about pleasure more than anything else. I'm curious, this meal that was so transformative for you, do you remember specific dishes or is it more just the overall experience? Um, this Kara Kara braised short rib, I've had it so many times since and I think about it all the time. Does it hit in the same way? Absolutely. I'm glad. I was worried you were going to say it could never measure up, but I think that's a sign of a great restaurant. Every time I go to Thai Diner and I get their cow soy, I mm. think this would be my last meal on earth. And I said that to a stranger sitting next to me last time, <laughs> and then they didn't order it, and I was offended, honestly. They were probably scared of hurting you in case they didn't. Like, you know how sometimes when a waiter gives a really, really enthusiastic recommendation, I'm scared to order it because I'm like, what if I don't love it and I hurt you in your soul? Yeah, that is a very empathetic approach. I'll say that to myself. Um, something that really struck me reading this book is just the way you write about food. I think your food writing is is so good. It's it's kind of like reading uh, Gabrielle Hamilton, where I feel 
like jealous that I have not written that in that way. Um, and I wanted to just read a quote from the beginning of the book and talk about the idea behind it with you. If you don't mind me reading it. Go ahead. Would you rather read it? No, I'm actually delighted to hear it in somebody else's voice for once. Okay, no pressure. <laughs> Chef had lost its meaning. Like lucky, like fresh, like soon. No saffron, no buffalo meat, no polished short grain rice. Dishes winked out from menus like extinguished stars as conservative nativist attitudes seized the few restaurants that remained open thanks to government subsidies. As they shut borders to refugees, so countries shut their palates to all but those cuisines deemed essential. In England, the shrinking supply of frozen fish was reserved for kippers or gray renditions of cod and chips. And of course, a few atrociously expensive French preparations with which a diner might buy, along with sour wine, the illusion that she still lived in luxury. Back to stodgy safety, back to national dishes unchanged for hundreds of years. The loss of pesto should have come as no surprise in a world with no favas, no milkfish, no curry lane in London or Thai town in LA, no fusion, no specials of the day, no truffles turned out like sheepish lovers from under the blankets of sod. We were lucky, those around me said. We survived. So I read that and it felt like too true, like that that could actually be a possibility. And I was curious about how you developed this idea of nativism returning to menus in an era where um, produce and food in general is just not accessible to people. Yeah, it was perhaps my reaction to this modern idea that I think is sometimes um, dispensed of food as soft power or that culinary diplomacy as possible, right? Kind of this fantasy that if we can set a beautiful multicultural table, we can create a beautiful multicultural society that sits around and like shares their troubles and all is good, right? Um, I find this this image sort of as disingenuous and facile as somebody, you know, saying like, I can't be racist because I have black friends. Mm-hmm. Um For example, if you look at the ubiquity of Chinese-American food in even the smallest towns in America, that did not save the Chinese-American population from anti-Asian hate during the pandemic, right? Um, I think that, unfortunately, in these moments of crisis, it does sometimes cause the surge in nationalism, the surge in, again, the question of what is essential. Um, And oftentimes, things like diversity are considered non-essential goods, right? Um, so I was interested in kind of, kind of turning over the stone of this idea of multiculturalism and thinking, well, if disaster did come and the culinary world were to show its true colors, what if this illusion of our fuzzy multicultural table was one of the first ones to be shattered? Yeah, I think that it resonates because it is possible to imagine that. And what you're saying reminds me of a phrase that I saw I don't know who originated this, but I definitely saw a lot of people that are like Asian American in the food world saying, we wish you loved us as much as you love our food Mm -hmm. um, when there was a big wave of anti-Asian hate. And I think it's interesting because on one level, I can imagine, you know, white America revolting at the idea of there not being any more like spicy tuna rolls, you know, or something that is like a non like white American food because these foods are so widely embraced. And also because America doesn't have the same kind of longstanding food tradition as France, for example. Um, But then at the same time, you think about the way that nativism approaches in other parts of culture, especially in a disaster situation like this, maybe it isn't so far afield. I mean, think about freedom fries, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, for anyone that doesn't know about this, like the renaming of French fries to be freedom fries, Uh, It's one step beyond that. It's a little more extreme. 
Right. But then you read it and you can picture that happening. And specifically when you talk about Los Angeles, L.A. plays a, such a big role in this book. Mm. And I grew up in L.A. So that like resonates with me. Have you spent time in that city? It seems like you must have. Only really um, as a tourist, I feel like it's a city I don't know really well because I don't drive. So Ooh. as right, like as a walker or someone dependent on either Uber or public transportation, I don't think you can understand the soul of the city. Right. Not like New York where you can walk everywhere. Yeah. But you must have had some good food meals in L.A. to, to choose to focus on it in this kind of way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think L.A. is just like this fascinating place because it is this site of American culture. It's, you know, the center of Hollywood. It's this like lavishness and this glitz and glamour, but also right outside um, L.A. is this like an agricultural basket, right, um, where there are migrant laborers and the climate is so vastly different. Actually, the climate isn't that different because the climate is often awful in L.A. It's just that we have these like shiny air conditioned places to hide. Right. And I'm really interested in that contrast. I think it makes a lot of sense. And also, if you spend time in L.A., especially if you're driving in and out of it, you're kind of aware of climate politics and how they relate to food in a different way. I think it's pretty common to see signs at um, maybe like almond farms that say mm. um, they're against like water regulations and the way that like certain foods have already been politicized in this current climate, like literal climate in terms of climate change. I think that's kind of on display in California in a way that maybe isn't in other parts of the country that aren't growing so much food and also aren't affected by drought in a similar way. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I have spent a lot of time in a car driving between San Francisco and L.A. and have definitely seen those signs. So maybe they were there in the back of my head as well. Right. And you weren't the one doing the driving, so you had time to, to linger on them exactly. a little more. <laughs> um, so really, this is all kind of talking about food as a mechanism of power, which I think is maybe you talk about a little bit in this, not you, but one would talk about today in terms of truffles or these kind of expensive, hard to find foods. But in this situation, it's really almost all food that becomes expensive or hard to find. I'm curious, like in this scenario, like what are the foods that you would find yourself missing the most? Oh, that's easy to answer because I already miss them living in New York now. It's just really good, fresh produce. Like yeah. there are a couple months of the year and right now, you know, it's uh, August. So we're sort of still in in that sweet spot where we can get really great local produce um, on the East Coast. But during the winters here, I miss produce so much. There's just nothing like uh, West Coast produce. Is there a specific item that if you could have it in endless good supply, you would want? I think cherries. Mm. I think cherries are like the that girl of all like the, the summer <laughs> fruits. They're such the perfect size to snack on and they're just so audaciously good when they're good. And they're like really sexy. There's something about the fact that they stain everything that they touch. Yeah. And also if you are like pitting them yourself, you're just kind of ripping into them and the juice is dripping. I've never used a cherry pitter. No, I don't think that's your MO. I feel like it's so much more like sensual based on what I've read in this book to be ripping into them instead. Yeah. So I want to get your thoughts on another thing that happens in the book. And I've been trying to avoid spoilers, so I don't think this is a big one. But there's a moment when this protagonist is faced with a test when she arrives at the research institute that's going to be her new job. And you write that it's not a perfect French omelet, which she expects. Instead, it's flour, vanilla, eggs, and then something that you describe as as warm as skin, as yielding as a woman's inner thigh, strawberries which I love that description. And I'm curious, like, what made you decide on that being the test? Well, as a Top Chef super fan, I think I can safely say that 
pastry challenges are often the most difficult one for chefs who aren't trained specifically in that area of expertise. Um, I think that for someone who's not an expert in pastry, it's really hard to be creative and to innovate in that space, um, which maybe speaks a little bit to the situation that the chef finds herself in at this research community. I like that answer. And I also feel like um, being able to spotlight produce instead of like just eggs and butter that would be in an omelet feels like a really special choice because produce is something that people have so much of an attachment to that is fleeting. It's not around for as much time. Maybe it would have been gone sooner than eggs. Yeah. Um, Something else that I like about the book is that it's about the end of the world, but it has so much pleasure and life and beauty in it, even that strawberry description. How much did you think about like wanting to have that duality and how did you kind of focus on having both of those in one book? I think that Every book that I write changes me to some degree. Um, I never know exactly what I'm writing about when I begin. And the course of working on this novel made me realize that we really need to take pleasure seriously if we intend to survive, right? Thinking back to sort of the watershed that was the pandemic where we were focused on what is essential. I think we all realize that though things like food, water, health um, are essential to live on a day-to-day, week-by-week, year-to-year basis in order to survive the entire scope of a life, um, you need other things. You need beauty, you need art, you need pleasure, right? It's sort of what is the point of living with only the essentials? And as someone who suffers from depression, it's not a rhetorical question, right? It is really a crucial beating question. Um, and so it became really important for me in this book to to take pleasure very seriously and to hold it um, as sacred, perhaps. I like that idea. Um, do you feel like there are any moments in the book that that kind of especially rings true for you? Um, a little bit after that moment that you mentioned, um, where the chef is working with strawberries and she puts one in her mouth for the first time after several years of not having any fruit. And it's just this sensual explosion where it is about the taste of that fruit, but it's also about this sort of collapse of time and memory and all the, you know, people that she's loved and eaten strawberries with, all the experiences that she's had. It's like a whole world in a bite. Um, And I think that kind of says everything that I want to say about the importance and the possibility of of pleasure. I like that moment a lot too. I think as someone who is dramatic every summer when I have like my first tomato of the year, thinking about it being years before I have the first good tomato, it's, it's a very like sombering um, realization. I feel like I had to shut the book for a little bit after that and then like go eat of stone fruit or something as soon oh. as I could. Um, do you like dry farm tomatoes? Um, I don't know if I know what that is. Like like greenhouse tomatoes? Ooh. Now you're making me realize I don't know the exact definition, but you can get them sometimes in California in the farmer's markets at certain times of year. But it's a tomato that I think is grown with less water. So I think it makes it the flavor more concentrated because it's there's less juice in the t- tomato itself. It's like smaller, but like packed with flavor. Whoa. I've never had those before. But it reminds me of the TriStar strawberry, strawberries that you can get on the East Coast mm-hmm. that are maybe like half the size of the California strawberries I grew up with, but they're so sweet because that flavor is just concentrated and they're less watery. It's very special. Yeah, absolutely. I have a friend in California who every time it's dry farm tomato season, she will literally go out and buy like five or 10 pounds of it. 
Okay, I'm going to California soon. I'm going to have to see if it's still happening. And if I will, I'll I'll report back to you. Yeah, I wish you all the best. (laughs) So I'm curious, like after writing so much about food, what do you think is the secret to good food writing? Eroticism and constraint. Um, I think when I set out to write a good food scene, I'm not trying to be exhaustive in my descriptions, which was, I think, my initial impulse. I'm trying to be evocative, right? The goal is actually not to describe perfectly a precise meal that a character has had. It's to put enough on the page that the reader is then thinking of all the great meals they've had that are similar of a meal they want to eat that's like, that is like that meal, right? It's putting this like wanting um, in their mouths. Yeah, I get that as a reader. I was very hungry reading this book. Great. Um, and you've mentioned that you're a Top Chef super fan. How did you get the knowledge to be writing these like fine dining scenes, especially these very like chefy kitchen scenes? Yeah, so um, I've watched every single of Top Chef, many of them more than once. Um, wow. What's would- the appeal for you? You know, it's so funny. I think I got turned on to them when I was first in college. And so this was soon after my whole like reading food blogs. And I kind of just like wanted more of that stuff. And I still couldn't afford to eat nice meals out. So I would like rush home to my dorm after like a hard day in the trenches of academia and like eat my terrible like dining hall takeout food while watching Top Chef. And it just made the food I was eating taste better. Um, to imagine that possibility. So um, a lot of Top Chef was watched. I also read quite a few chef memoirs, including Gabrielle Hamilton's, which I really, really adore and is in the acknowledgments of this book. I love MFK Fisher. I think she is like one of the great American food writers. Um, And I have had quite a few fine dining experiences myself. Um, My first job out of college was working as a copywriter in San Francisco Tech, during sort of the golden bubble of the tech boom. And so it was the kind of atmosphere where uh, for a team dinner, we would go out to Atelier Crenn. Wow. Yeah, I know. And I was incredibly lucky to have these experiences. Um, And at the same time, it was sort of eye-opening because sometimes you would go out to like Atelier Crenn or Bennu and you would see at the next table these like tech bros in their uh, in their hoodies and in their sandals. And not that you can't wear those to a fine dining establishment, but what I'm trying to say is you could see that they just didn't actually care about the food at all. To them, it was just another sort of status symbol. Um, and so that got the wheels turning as well. I find that very interesting. Um, what about like wearing sandals and a hoodie meant that they didn't care about the food? It was... Um, that, for example, there would be certain establishments where that was not the dress code, right? So they would have made the wait staff uncomfortable because they have to come in and say something. They have to kind of like offer these these people appropriate attire and they have to do that like awkward dance of power where it's like you are the paying customer. You have the power. I have to tell you you're not abiding by the rules, but how do I do it in a way that doesn't piss you off, right? It was this like carelessness um, of the attitude And you could just see it in everything from the clothing to the way they like didn't finish their food or didn't listen to sort of like the full description of what was being placed on the table. Yeah, I think um, that makes sense. And it's kind of something that I see reflected in this book in the way that this chef is she's in a very unusual position in terms of how she's serving these guests and the way that she views them or like watches them eat. Like you are very aware of this dynamic between not only someone that's serving this 
beautiful, beautifully made food, but also it's with ingredients that are the only of its kind on earth, maybe, or maybe that even haven't even been on earth mm-hmm. before. And so all of those dynamics are even more heightened in terms to like, do these people appreciate it? Do they deserve it in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I just want to say that I'm not one for being fussy about fine dining. I actually like my favorite like Michelin starred restaurants are the ones where I've like licked the plate and I can see the wait staff like grinning in the back. So it's it's truly not about like the dress code. It's just everything that um, it symbolizes sometimes. Right. Did you talk to any like chefs or cooks as well? I feel like the way you write about um, chefs liking to smoke cigarettes to me, that felt like a very insider um, observation. Um, I I had a couple of chef friends who looked over the manuscript for me after it was done, but in the creation phase of any book, I tried to keep it sort of private. And again, I read all these memoirs and watched all these shows to get that insider, but it's hard to have like another distinct voice in your head when you're in the process of drafting. Definitely. And then you show it to them afterwards as a vibe check and they must have loved it, I imagine. I I think so, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So after writing this, do you look at restaurants differently when you go out to eat or maybe farms, farmers markets? I think that, I don't know if it was a product of writing this book or a product of just living through the pandemic, but I'm so much more conscious of the um, atmosphere of a restaurant now. I think that, you know, again, growing up without much money, there was a whole period of my life when I was like really conscious of the value of just the food on the plate. I was like, why would I pay whatever, like $80 to eat a chicken, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But now I'm just so much more conscious of that community element of a restaurant, how the right restaurants can make you feel cared for, um, of who else is in the room, of the comfort level of everyone there, of everything that's not just about the food on the plate, um, just the entire apparatus that supports it. I think that makes sense. And it makes me think about the way that you write about the restaurant kitchen space in the book at this institute, because it's signaling wealth in all of these ways. But there are all of these, you know, one-way mirrors, like things that are not quite as they seem. It made me a little, I wouldn't say paranoid, but you know, when I got to eat, I'm thinking more about like, you know, what's on the other side that I can't see. Yeah. I think there are good questions for all of us to ask ourselves. Not just in restaurants, but probably like everywhere we go. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned your acknowledgement section before. Your acknowledgement section is maybe like 80% restaurant dishes. (laughs) It's definitely more than I've ever seen before. Um, Can you like unpack that a little bit for me? Um, I mean, it was just like one of the most fun things for me to do in this book. I think that a lot of writers, we really, a lot of fiction writers, we really hate talking about our books, but we love talking about things we've read, things we've uh, consumed that fed us. And usually we talk about it in a literary sense, or maybe we also talk about movies or music. But I'm, I was just writing this acknowledgement section. I realized that it would be a lie to not just put the food in here. So much um, of what I've been eating over the past, you know, 30 years of my life really played a role in the formation of this novel. And so the acknowledgements list, it isn't exactly a list of like my favorite restaurants or like the best restaurants across the world, but it is a kind of private notebook of places that really changed the way I thought about food. And, you know, that includes rotisserie chickens at Costco (laughs) and it includes, right, like a particular beautiful grain dish at Atelier Crenn. So you have your book in front of you. Would you mind maybe calling out a couple of the dishes and and telling me a little bit about them? Okay, this will be fun. Yeah, it's like a a little quick game. 
Okay, so um, Budig sliced turkey. <laughs> One of my favorite snacks to this day is just sliced deli meat turkey. Um, it was something I would steal from the fridge growing up in Kentucky. It was something that was like extremely like American, like in all caps to me, and something my parents only bought sale on sale when it was maybe five for a dollar. Um, and it's absolutely disgusting. It tastes like a salt lick. And it's also something that was so, so deeply important to me. I have um, a friend, the uh, food, the writer and former restaurant critic at the San Francisco Chronicle, Soleil Ho, who wrote this incredible piece years and years and years ago um, in which they coined the term assimilation food. Mm. Um, to talk about all these immigrant communities that will do things like eat sliced deli meat turkey on rice or, you know, mix even like the original assimilation food of Spam. Yeah. Um, and those are just like really, really formative foods for me. Would you eat it just, would you roll it up? Would you eat it flat? Hmm. I think I alternated between rolling it up and eating it flat just so, you know, I got a little a little bit of a change in there. Textural variation. Yeah, textural variation. God, oh no, this is going to have me demonstrate on air my non-existent pronunciation of French. So, Polar de Bresse in Vesse at La Berger du Pont de Colognes in Lyon. Um, so it's this like famous restaurant where they do this incredibly elaborate dish of an entire chicken that is stuffed with truffles and steamed in a bath of in- expensive liqueur. Wow. Um, and they cut it and carve it table side. Um, it's, you know, that kind of like classical nouveau French preparation that you really cannot do with a giant kitchen staff and all these specialized tools. Um, and it's it's delicious. And I was, when I went to eat it, this was actually part of like explicit uh, research for the book. When I went to eat it at this restaurant in Lyon, I was fully expecting not to like it. And you know, expecting that I would write it off as this like silly uh, rich person food. But it was delicious and delicious in a way I didn't expect where the chicken was kind of tough in a way that you don't get in America, right? Because we're so fixated on having this like completely bland sponge of a food. Um, But chicken that is often grown kind of organically without hormones, um, and not sort of blown up to these ridiculous proportions is a little bit tough. It should have chew as well as flavor. I love that. Um, and that reminds me of this interesting thing in the book where the chef is, um, she specializes in French food. Mm-hmm. Did you like French food ahead of time? And what made you decide to have that be the focus? You know, my first time probably eating French food, I don't even remember the meal because I was so nervous about the environment. Um I I think maybe we went out to a French restaurant um, to celebrate my college graduation and my family from China had come over and this was an environment that was new to all of us. And I was just so conscious of feeling out of place that I literally don't remember what we ate or what it tasted like. Um, but at the same time, French food is just like this constant undercurrent in all of cooking, right? Even um, great non-French chefs we'll still talk about French training. And it felt like something you kind of have to eat to understand modern food today for good or for ill. Um, And so I think that I don't put it on a pedestal 
Um, I think of the European cuisines, Italian is actually probably my favorite, but um, there are, I do appreciate what it has done for the culinary world. Yeah, and I think definitely in the context of this book where we are talking about people, elites in power returning to kind of more like baser instincts or appreciations, French food still has a chokehold on food culture at large around the world. Um, And it makes sense that like chefs would turn to French food as almost like a safety mechanism, right? That like people are going to be wanting to eat this more than other cuisines. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that for me, my favorite parts of French cuisine are like the simplest ones. I like peasant foods, right? I like cassoulets. I like just straight up cheese. I mean, who does not love cheese? Yeah, straight up cheese is like enough on its own probably. Yeah. It's interesting because I was just in Paris um, last month and some of the best meals that I had were all uh, like Asian French chefs that are doing kind of this intermingling of fusion cuisine that you almost kind of nod to at the end of your book when you're talking about like new trends in food. But that was something that I was not expecting because I haven't been to France in maybe a decade. And it was um, so delicious and also just like really fun as a diner. Yeah, you can't throw a stone in Paris without hitting a Japanese French chef these days. Or or just like, um, and also like straight up boba places everywhere, mm. like Asian food everywhere. My girlfriend that I was with is Taiwanese and we like were kind of shocked by how much Asian food was everywhere, but we had a, a great time eating all of it, you know? Amazing. Okay. I want to ask you about one more in the acknowledgement section and maybe I can pick it. Okay. Go ahead. I want to ask about the Mapo lasagna at Nightshade in Los Angeles. I am obsessed with that dish. Um, it's a dish by a winner of Top Chef, Mei Lin. Um, it was a restaurant that unfortunately closed during the pandemic, and she did this exquisite sort of like beautiful, uh, yeah, kind of fusion-y, I guess, Chinese um, and French-inflected cuisine. And I just have been waiting every day for her to open nightshade again or open a new restaurant. Is it, It's like a mapo tofu lasagna is the flavoring or what's the deal? How do you describe it? I don't even. So it's it's a lasagna that has like a bazillion layers um, and it has ground ground meat that is flavored in that mapo way with the, you know, the fruity Sichuan peppercorn and it's sort of laid flat on its side. So you see the kind of milfuel of, yeah. of the construction. Um, and it's just and it's just exquisite. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm crossing my fingers that that dish comes back in some form as well. And to close, you know, this is taste and we were talking about our guest taste. So I have a little like rapid fire taste check for you. So I'll throw out like a category and you can just tell me what comes to mind. Okay. okay. Um, Go to bodega snack. Um, Sour cream and cheddar ruffles. Go to writing snack. Um, probably anything crispy and savory that I can eat with one hand. So ruffles. <laughs> yeah. Ruffle, <laughs> popcorn sometimes. Uh, your favorite cookbook? I don't read cookbooks. Whoa. Okay. Favorite New York City restaurant? The answer is so seasonal. And so because we're in the height of summer, I probably have to say Via Carota because what is a better outdoor table with a more perfect spritz and a more perfect salad? Um, and also Falansai right now in Brooklyn, which has the most exquisite uh, jackfruit and cashew and chia dessert. Wow. Favorite New York City bookstore? You and me books. Favorite reading snack? Hmm. Maybe apples. Mm. Most underrated piece of kitchen equipment? A butcher knife. Most overrated ingredient? Truffles. That's what everyone says. I know. It's true. <laughs> um, to close your favorite food scene in literature? Um, I think I have to reach all the way back in childhood. Every food scene in Redwall, 
the series about the like, you know, little fighting mice and otters. What kind of food are they eating? Do you remember? Oh my God. My mouth is watering right now. Just thinking about it. They're eating like uh, pasties and like oat farls and like whole fish from the river. And it's just, it's like this glorious seasonal bounty. Okay. I'm going to have to revisit that one. Pam, this was so much fun. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Hey, Matt, want to talk about some more fall cookbooks? You know what? This fall is really shaping up. This is the third time we've been talking about fall, and it's it's late August, and we're getting in the season. We're getting into it. I'm sure the fall, the the big, the eater, Epicurious, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, all their like best 10, 20, 30, 40 lists, Stain Pages News are going to come out soon. They are. You're really dragging me into fall. I'm a summer devotee. But talking about all the books, I, I'm, I'm a little excited because there are so many recipes that I want to make, but only when it's cold enough to turn on my oven. It's true. And that's the great thing about this fall preview season is we can bookmark and put our post notes into all these items we'll be cooking in January, February. But really, you got to hit that pre-order button because you're going to forget and we're going to tell you great things about these books. And you're going to be like, man, I, I remember that book. What was it called? Well, you know, it hit pre-order on, you know, Bookshop or Amazon or Books Are Magic or, you know, anywhere. Yeah, even better if you forget about it because then it's a gift from past (laughs) you to future you. It's so true. Okay, I'm going to start. A book that I've been really looking forward to is Kung Food by John Kung. Uh, I've gotten to know John. I I had a meal with him in in Detroit. He's from Detroit uh, a couple summers ago. Um, He's a former chef living in Detroit and... He has a really cool point of view on food. He he comes out of kind of TikTok and, and online content land, though he's a, a trained chef and ran a culinary school in, uh, in the market in Detroit. This is his first cookbook. And I love the ingenuity with the recipe development. I love the way he has whimsy. He definitely takes, takes points of view and takes fist-shaking points of view that I, I love. Um, one of the dishes that really popped out was the B-E-L-T, bacon, egg, lettuce, and tomato with ginger scallion oil. Also the S-E-L-T, spam, egg, lettuce, and tomato. He's rethinking these acronym sandwiches. Yeah, are there non-acronyms in the book also? <laughs> many, many. I love this. We talked about this. I think we, he was on the podcast when he was writing this book, but he uh, he addresses this, the merging of mapo tofu and kimchi jjigae which was inspired by, this is a quote from the headnote, an online flame war that went on between Chinese and Korean netizens about the origins of kimchi. Well, do, do you remember that little moment, maybe like two years ago on Twitter? No, but you know, so much has happened on Twitter. So much has. We don't really uh, remember it, but it was basically, um, I believe, uh, the Chinese government or the, someone from from a Chinese uh, academic institution was... was um, claiming that kimchi was Chinese and then of course the Korean uh, population weighed in and it was it was messy and and now those two the dialogue is coming back in the form of one new recipe one recipe Eric Kim comes into play and, and John is friends with Eric and they, they they came together on this recipe it's super cool I can't wait to make it yeah it sounds great what's your first fall book my first fall book is Sola El cookbook which is coming out at the end of October it is going to be called start here Mm. instructions for becoming a better cook and anything solo tells me to do i will (laughs) listen to and this book i think is going to be really exciting it's gigantic it could double as a weapon if someone breaks into your home Um, Mm -hmm. but also it has recipes that i just think sound really fun there's like a masa buttermilk tres leches cake yeah 
absolutely such a crack recipe developer. Have you actually held the book? I have held the book, but uh, the dummy, what's it called? It had nothing inside of it. Oh, you actually, yeah. It's, it had uh, just the hardcover. Oh, that's funny. That's like such an insidery thing that is like for done for photo versions. I was like over for dinner at her house and she gave it to me and I was <laughs> so excited because I thought I was getting to open up the book and look at it. And I looked inside and every page was blank and I, I was like truly crushed. I love that. I have to wait with everyone else, but I'm I'm really excited about this yeah. book. I think it'll be a great one. Yeah, she's going to be on the show soon. I think we're booking it soon and running it soon. So I don't know. It's a lot of like. It's got to uh, be soon. It's going to be soon. Um, What's your next book? Really cool book. I, I finally got a chance to hold it and open it up. It's called Italian Wine, and it's by Shelley Lindgren and Kate Leahy. Shelley is the wine director and owner of A16 in San Francisco, a legendary restaurant, um, been around for decades. Uh, my co-author and friend Dan Holzman worked there. Um, there's definitely a lot of legacy there. And Shelley is a real leader in in Italian food, I guess, knowledge in, in the country. And Kate Leahy is amazing. What a great writer and terrific recipe developer and collaborator. She's also one of the uh, co-hosts of Everything Cookbooks. And she's the only host on the show I have not had on the podcast. I'm trying to book her soon. Um, But back to Italian wine. It's a cool book because it's not a wine book for wine people per se, though it goes over the 20 wine regions or the the regions of Italy and and goes through them in great detail. But what I like about it is Kate's writing, the way that she discusses each of the regions, terroir and the culture and the the people and, of course, the food. So if you're a a lover of Italian food and maybe not the wine – this is the book for you. I, I really mean that. Um, uh, the, they're going over the cheeses and the pasta types. Uh, they're going over Super Tuscans to Grillo. It's, it's all of this uh, knowledge about Italian food in a package. I think Italian wine, the title maybe even undersells it a little bit. But if you are a wine lover, this is definitely the book for you. Yeah, I'm going to have to check it out. Real LeVar Burton there with that. This is the book for you. This is the book for you. I love it. This is part of what Taste is about, though. We're talking about cookbooks, and this is the book for you. If you like Italian wine, what's your next one? My next one is James Park's book, Chili Crisp, that's coming out. Yes, you mentioned this one. I love that. He's, he's coming on the show soon. I mentioned this before when we were talking about Jingal's Chili Crisp cookbook, but I wanted to take a second to talk about Jamesy's more because there's some recipes that I've been seeing on Instagram that I just can't wait to make, specifically a spiced sweet potato Basque cheesecake with sweet chili wow. crisp. Wow. What That is really smart. Wow. Basque cheesecake with chili crisp. I love that. I love, I mean, I love Chili Crisp on everything, and I like the idea of making different flavors of Chili Crisp, like, based on if you're doing savory or sweet. And the photos look so beautiful. Hemi Lee shot them. I just think it's going to be a really fun cookbook. Yeah, Jamesy is really um, a super talented guy. Uh, He comes from Pohang in Korea, and he's really just a food media mover and worked to eater for years, and we're going to get into it in our interview. But I I love uh, this topic, and I think both Jing and Jamesy's books are going to dovetail in a cool way because they're very different, which I like. Yeah, and you could get them both together for someone that like really loves Chili Crisp. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Buy both. It's, like, great. It's, like, you know, under 50 bucks for two books with a jar of Chili Crisp. You're at, like, 65 bucks. That's, like, a perfect price for a gift. Yeah, and then you can add, like, some napkins. Add some napkins. Yeah, napkins. All right. For, okay. all, for all the chili oils. So oh, I get s- on the book. Very true. Very true. Okay, I see where you're going with that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know where I'm going with we that. Should do but... a, we should do an episode where we actually pair books together for gifts. Oh, I like that idea. Let's do that. I or think... maybe people could um, 
tell us who they're trying to shop for and we do like secret shopper you know we're gonna do that that's great we'll we'll put it out on our socials in our newsletter and we'll, we'll get a couple like people personas per se um let's definitely tag this i i, I don't want to forget because we should come back because i think we have a lot of interesting combinations twos and threes let's actually have book larder in seattle recently <laughs> and they do a cool thing they do uh like five books for 50 bucks and That's huge. It's a great deal, and they they pair them kind of by theme, so it's it's cool. I love that. Do you have another book to talk about? I do. My last one is "Pie Is Messy" by Becca Grassley. Is she's the owner of Pie Hole in Los Angeles? You're from Los Angeles. What's the deal with Pie Hole? Pie Hole, I know it as a storefront in downtown in the Arts District. Yeah. When I was in high school, I would go to like DIY shows down there sometimes and I would also go get a slice of pie and it would mm. be really fun and I kind of think of them as a, a restaurant down in the Arts District that's the whole neighborhood has changed a lot over the past 10 years and they were kind of one of the earlier spots there so it's nice to see that they're doing a cookbook now because I think of them as being kind of around for a little while they've been around did you ever go to Hanson Brothers coffee down there um no no did you ever go to the smell yeah, I did go to the smell before it closed. Before it closed, R.I.P. Uh, the smell. R.I.P. The smell. Not a, a food, anything, more of a DIY venue. Smell is like a all-ages DIY venue yeah. that was very beloved in L.A. That is closed, but um, maybe they're doing something similar. I don't really know. Did you go to Cinespace? Uh, no. Man, we're just going over, like, downtown clubs right yeah, now. Yeah, this is our, like, second podcast. Second podcast back is downtown L.A. But back to the pie. I like this book a lot. Um, it's super sharp um, in that the chapters are very concise. Uh, and and she breaks down pie into different categories, meringue, cream, custard, and nut. And a couple really stuck out, a couple recipes. One is the cardamom cherry pie. Uh, one is a vegan coconut cream pie. And the last, really want to try this, is a grapefruit in the form of lemon meringue. Basically substitute grapefruit for lemon in a meringue. And you've got grapefruit meringue. Pretty sweet, right? Yeah, I love that idea. And I bet the color could be nice also. Definitely. Very, very cool recipe. Not easy to pull off. So glad that, uh, that you know, Becca did the, did the hard work in developing that one. Definitely. What is your final book? Okay, my last book is not a cookbook, but it is about food. It's Alicia Kennedy's new book, No Meat Required. That is all about the history of plant-based eating in the United States. And I really like something that takes like a long look at a subject. And specifically, she's talking about these kind of radical origins of plant-based eating to this moment now where we have impossible burgers at fast food places and kind of questioning like of the motivations of eating plant-based changed on a structural level, on an individual level. I just started it, but I, I've been a fan of her writing for a long time. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it so what far. What a great call. We have Alicia booked for a podcast soon and we'll be putting that one up. We've had her on two months ago, but we didn't talk about the book. Now we're going to talk about the book. I've also started the book as well. And I just have always admired Alicia's journalism, but also her academic rigor and the way she blends both into a book that's not boring. It, it reads really well and it, it really brings a lot to the table. Similar to writers like Marion Nessel and David Camp, I, I put her into those same categories. And um, while this book is slim, which I think is a good thing, um, it's not um, overbearing. You can definitely finish it in, in less than a week. Um, I think it's an essential book, and, and I hope folks read it. I really do. Me too. Thanks for talking books, Eliza. Thanks, Matt. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. 
visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.